Hello and welcome to the Say What is Truth podcast with me, your host, Joni Haas. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. Uh, The Say What is Truth podcast is my chance to speak with everyday extraordinary people about life's defining moments. And as one Apple Podcasts reviewer said, making humans human again. I debated whether I should split this episode into two parts, but decided not to, and here is why. Even though it is quite long, for those of you who really want to listen to it all at once, I don't want to deny you the chance. And if it's too long for you to listen to in one sitting, that's totally fine. You can split it up as you see fit. But I have never met anyone like my guest this week. Uh, Even at over two hours long, our interview could have gone on for even longer. He has a story unlike any I have ever heard. Buckle up and get ready for a ride. Uh, you're going to love him. His name is Faisal, or as he sometimes says, people call him Face. You're going to be blown away. So just just be prepared for that. Um, such an intense story and such a really, really nice man. I'm so grateful for the opportunity I got to meet with him. Um, If you hear another person chuckling softly in the background, that is my niece, Malena. She is the connection that uh, made it so that I could meet him. And so she was present at the interview. I'm not going to keep on going. Just be prepared. This is an amazing story. And I'm so grateful for the insights and the the, the warmth and understanding that Faisal brought. So without further ado, here's Faisal. Please begin. Tell me about yourself. Okay, well, I'll introduce myself. My name is Faisal, Faisal Carlson. Um... Typically, whenever I tell people my my story, I usually don't have a lot of time, and I usually have five ten minutes to kind of squeeze my whole life story into it. And uh, no, but I I've, I've I have to say that I've, I've I have lived an incredible life, and a lot of people that have or know me that that have met me have you know requested that I possibly write a book about my life, and and some of the things I describe that have happened in my life are, are pretty incredible. But I've always used those as. Um, learning opportunities and a way to give back to society because I've experienced it and I know I recognize the signs and I can tell when someone's going through something that I can share something that's relative to what they're going through and and from speaking from experience Mm -hmm. it has more clout whenever you're having those conversations so but my 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 beginnings um are actually um out of Africa I was born in Rhodesia which is now Zimbabwe. Okay. And I was raised in that country. Um, but I, I was given a gift of discernment from a very young age. I have memories from when I was two years old and as vivid as they are wow. that happened yesterday. And so for me, um, a lot of my, my life is documented and memorized um, and pretty significant. And everything that's happened in my life is not by chance. Because by the age of four, I knew I was different. Hmm. And um, to understand the significance of just me as an individual, it from my dad's side of the family, my dad was Muslim. 
my grandfather was Muslim and my grandfather from doing some genealogy work had come from Saudi Arabia into what was known as um, Rhodesia Nyasaland at the time and that then became Southern Rhodesia, that then became Rhodesia, that then became um, um, Zimbabwe. Wow. Um, the, 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 the fun part of the story is um, my grandfather had four wives, all black from Africa. And from those four wives, he had 26 children. Oh, my goodness. 13 sons, 13 daughters. My father was actually the youngest of all the children and the youngest of his 13 brothers. From that, I have over 500 cousins. Oh, my gosh. And oh my gosh. the family is large. That's just from my dad's side. Wow. And my dad's family were very... Um, it's weird because when I look back on my life, I see that a lot of the the wives that were also married tended to be Muslim until their husbands died and then they became Christian. And, and so there's a, there's a mixture of both religions in my family. But as a child, as a four year old, is that pretty common in that area for there to be like lots of Muslims and lots of Christians and they sort of like intermix like that? Yes. Okay. And they have a great love and respect for each other. And, and um, the culture that I grew up was, was a very close knit community and they were always, very friendly and you couldn't do anything in the neighborhood and not anyone know about it the next day it was that's how you know tight people were okay so but my my story is pretty interesting in that um being raised in africa from a middle class family my mom and dad were married and um i came along and then um like i said by the age of four um we moved closer to my one of my dad's brothers and sisters into their neighborhood and from an early age, I could tell by meeting my, my cousins and stuff that I was different. And I didn't know what that meant until later on in life. And so I come from a very um, religious background, not just from a Muslim standpoint, but from a Christian standpoint. And I always had a way to be able to communicate with God on my own and was able to be guided in my life by God. And I would be told things that would happen in my life before they happened. Wow. And so the experiences I had in my life were pretty profound. And as I go through this, hopefully you'll, 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 you'll get to understand mm -hmm. the significance of some of the things I will share. My dad, sadly, was a, a very abusive father. Uh, and not so much to us as children, but to my mother. Um, a husband, I should say. And he... Um, my earliest memory of my dad was when I was four and he had come home one night because he used to be a renowned alcoholic. And he came home at like two, three in the morning with a prostitute on his arm, hmm. left up in the pouring rain, wakes my mom up to kick her out of the house. My younger sister was only six months old, grabbed to her. To kick her out of the house so he could be with the prostitute? Correct. Okay. So he then, um, my grandmother, who was living with us at the time too, um, she came out to try and intervene. And of course she was threatened by my dad that he would obviously not be kind to her in that way. Was too. that his own mother? His own mother. Yeah. hundred okay. percent. It wasn't my mother's mother. Right. That was, it was my dad's mother. And so that was, that was pretty hard for her to see her son doing something like that. But he was ad adamant. He wanted to have his way. And so my mom, myself in our pajamas had to walk in the pouring rain for five miles to get to my aunt's house for shelter while he was able to get, you know, his way. And that memory, as I said, is like a, a portrait staring me in the face right now, as vivid as it is. 
Um, and that was a very painful time in my childhood. Um, but it was the beginning of what made my mom who she was meant to be, which was independent. Mm. She never remarried after that. Um, she ended up um, staying with my aunt until I think two weeks or so and then got um, a place for herself in a different uh, neighborhood and then moved my sister and I away from our cousins and stuff into a whole different town. Um, and that was that was that that was my earliest experience with my, my my dad. And the sad thing with that was that my uncle, who lived only two doors away from us, he, he used to come and pick up my mom to take her to work every morning. And um, he gets there and he finds his mother in tears and says, you know, what happened? Where's Dorothy, which is my mom's name? And uh, she said, oh, I don't know where she's gone. She actually left in the middle of the night with the kids in the rain. And your brother came home drunk and beat her up and, you know, so he could have his way with this woman that's in the room with him. And so my uncle lost it. When when your dad sent your mom away, was it just like he was saying, go away for the night? Or he was saying, go away forever? No, go away for the night, expecting okay. her to... Okay. To, to be there back sure. then. Yeah. Okay. And of course, that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But my uncle came and saw to it that uh, he knew how displeased he was with my dad and grabbed him and this lady out of the bed and beat him so black and blue. It was it was awesome. <laughs> uh, it, it was totally, and it was totally needed. But um, so from that event, we actually moved to a different neighborhood. And, um, and I was, my dad would, being Muslim, would always encourage and want me to go to the mosque every Friday to say prayers and to be part of that religion. And it was a religion that I, I had a great love and respect for because all my family on my dad's side were Muslim and I had to show respect to my elders and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, I just went along with things, but it just didn't resonate with me. I just never understood it. It just didn't seem right to me. And so I didn't um, take too much. So by the age of 11, I stopped going to the mosques because my dad didn't go either himself. And, um, and I knew also that there was a different force that was leading and guiding my life and protecting me. And there's numerous in- incidents that I can tell, tell you about that actually um, saved my life when I should be dead. Mm. One particular, I was about 11, and my, my best friend and I in the neighborhood were riding our bicycles. He was riding really fast in front of me and came around a blind corner because there was a home that had a big fence and a hedge, and you couldn't see any cars or anything. So he came around... And he went wide of the corner, and because in Zimbabwe, like England, they drive on the left side of the road instead of the right. Okay. And so he went wide and was able to 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 get get through safely. I come round and cut short in in that corner, only to find myself straight in line with this car that was coming, and I couldn't stop. And the way the force of the bike and the way I was leaning, I should have gone straight into the car. But the bike went under the car and I was, something yanked me off the bicycle mm. into the, onto the lawn next to it. Wow. The, I mean, forces of gravity, I should have gone into the car because sure. that's where the bike was going. Yeah, yeah. But I was yanked off that bicycle, landed on the grass, the bike went under the car and I was not harmed at all. Wow. And you say that you feel like you've had lots of experiences lots like that. Lots of experiences. That, that is amazing yeah and so by the age of um 15 16 17 i had um my mom actually took me and had me christened in the uh, anglican faith and then by the age of 17 i decided i wanted to join the catholic faith i used to study the catechism for about two years and i really wanted to get closer to god and my desire was always to be a priest and so by the age of 19 i'd finished my catechism classes with sister nativitas 
and um, she was a nun that had taught me all for two years but she was from Germany and um, I was really fond of her she was fond of me and and she really took great care of me and, and helped me through my studies and stuff and then it got to the point where I would go to mass every Sunday and I'd leave mass feeling guilty guilty because I wasn't getting something out of it mm. and I would sometimes drift off and sleep during mass and then I'd come out feeling worse than when I went in and so to kind of try and influence myself to be more attentive I decided to offer myself as an altar boy where you had to pay attention you're sitting up front right next to the priest you had to ring the bell when he was saying certain things mm -hmm. and that would have to keep me awake <laughs> even that didn't do anything for me it just wasn't working so I eventually had found the courage to go to Father Thomas and I said, Father Thomas, I really want to be a priest. What do I need to do to do to be able to be a priest? And he said, well, unfortunately, you're from a middle class family. You don't have the, the finances to be able to put yourself through school and, you know, to be, get the education to be a priest and stuff. And, then, and in my naivety, but yet in my young wisdom, I turned to him and I said, well, if Peter was a fisherman and he was an apostle of the Lord, how is it that I need money just to be a priest? Because an apostle and a priest, is, in, right. my, in my sure. world, is, there's a big difference. Yeah, yeah. So, but he was so offended by my comment. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we kind of parted ways. And uh, so I never went back to the Catholic faith after that. And so with that, I, 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 my mom's sister was Seventh-day Adventist. And so I went to their faith and I was really searching for God. And I finally came across baptism by immersion. And I thought, well, that's kind of what I feel is true in the sense of how you should be baptized rather than having your head sprinkled with water. And um, I stayed for two years and the people felt great. Something kept telling me that there was something missing. And in the back of my mind, I'd also been told that you're different, you're different, you're different. Why out of all 500 cousins am I the one that's different? What did, what did that feel like to you? What was it that made you feel different? It scared me because it also meant a greater responsibility. Sure, sure. And when that difference was being shared with me, it meant that I was going to be responsible for the entire family, which was huge on someone so young. And so... I felt that if I didn't stay on a path that I needed to get those answers answered for myself, how could I help someone if I don't even know what I'm supposed to do? Sure. And so I knew that if I could get that connection and that that firmness and that, that confirmation from God, then at that point, hey, you know what? I'll do whatever I have to do. Then at least I understand. Mm -hmm. Well, by the age of 19, I... Um, I actually um, applied to become a police officer because that was also another part of my dreams. I did the aptitude test, I did the medical, the physical, and I came out top of my class. All the recruits, I was, there was out of 400, they, I think there was only 20 selected after interviews to go wow. in. So I was proud of myself for that, and my name was the, the first name on the board to go into the next training. But again, timing. The transition from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe and them gaining independence meant that, again, I come from a racial background. The whole of Southern Africa was under apartheid right. ways of life. Blacks and whites weren't allowed to, to, to mix. In my country, being black is actually being from the villages and being, you know, from the rural areas. And whereas from... Um, in my in my country, I'm not classed as black, I'm classed as colored because part of my family is white, some are black, and we're kind of in the middle. Right. So, I, I've, heard, I've heard of that distinction before, and yes. I remember 
having like kind of an aha moment, not realizing that in Africa there can be different distinctions like that. Correct. So, yeah. And and that's where that distinction comes from. So whilst I'm I'm trying to become a police officer, this change in the country meant that the whites had a dominated power in that country for many years. Um, through the founder who was Cecil John Rhodes who had emigrated from England under the Queen's authority took land from farmers and stuff and there's a second part of the story from my mom's side which I'll come to in, in a bit but sticking with my dad's side of the family so I'm going through this process I want to be a police officer and then all of a sudden the country's taken over by a black government rather than a white government the blacks then decide everyone that's on that board, if they're white and colored, gets they get wiped off the board. Anyone oh that's black goodness. goes to the top of the queue. Anyone other, anyone that was missed out on that intake that was black and now fill in the gaps. And so I waited two years and still never got into the police force. Just because I was colored, mm-hmm. they didn't accept my application, even though I'd already been offered the job. Right. But again, I look at that situation and say, well, you know, I really wanted to be a police officer and that didn't happen. So at 19, I was forced into a career that I stumbled into by accident. Never been a dancer, never danced in a dance school in my life. So I get invited to a competition by my cousin who had won it three years in a row. And that day that I went to go watch him. To dance. (laughs) And Well, no, I was invited to watch him. Oh, to watch. Okay, okay, yes. okay. But he'd already won it three times. This was going to be his fourth time. Mm-hmm. And the judges said, no, you've won it three times. You need to step aside, be a judge with us, and, you know, give others a chance. So he's like, great. And so he's sitting up there. And I'm in this audience watching everybody getting ready to start. I'd never danced in front of a single person in my life. And all of a sudden they said, well, we're not starting the competition until Faisal gets on. And I'm like... I'm not going on there. Why? They said, we just we just know you need to be in this competition. I'm like, I've never danced in my life. It's not going to happen. And sure enough, they said, we're not starting without you. Okay, so. okay. But why, though? <laughs> I, you, I was just as perplexed as you are. I, But I just knew I had was, to get on. Was this your cousin's idea? My cousin might have had some influence in, in okay. saying that they had to obviously have me get on there for some reason. But the way the competition went was they would play different songs. And mm-hmm. as they played the songs, you would do whatever you wanted, freestyle. And then if you got touched, that meant you had to get off the floor. And whoever was left standing at the end of those songs won the competition. Okay. And they must have played at least six songs. And the very last song they played was Don't Stop Till You Get Enough by Michael Jackson. That's my favorite song in the whole world. Not lying. My favorite song in the whole world. That was the song they played. And I don't know, some new animal came out of me that day. And (laughs) when I. It's the power of that song, I am telling you. (laughs) I promise you, that song brought something out of me like I can never. I, I can still picture that moment. And then all of a sudden, there was. Initially, there was three of us up until that song came on. And by the end of the day, I was the last person standing. <laughs> and that, and I was like, I actually won it? This was crazy. And then not only was that a surprise, but then they started handing me these hampers and gifts and money. And I was like, whoa, this is cool stuff. <laughs> I can do this for a living. And then so my, my cousin and I ended up joining forces and we became the dynamic duo. Oh my and goodness. So we then toured the circuit in our town doing exclusive dances and I started learning to do choreography and, and design because my mom was a leading fashion designer in the country. 
wow. and so she would make my costumes I, that I designed and so we we started touring the two of us for about six months and we just brought the whole town to its, to its knees we were so <laughs> famous so quick it was I was unreal so that was that was and so I kept asking myself so <laughs> I'm still just shaking my head like how does this happen where someone just like calls you out of a crowd and says this is what you're meant to do. Come do this thing. You're like, what? Okay. And now I'm an overnight superstar. Correct. <laughs> and that's just how it happened. And the, the fun part was, um, I look back at that moment, and, and that was truly the beginnings of something that had then made me ask that question again. And so I would have conversations myself on my own and talk to the heavens and say, okay, God, is this what you meant that I'm different? Mm-hmm. That am I different? Is this what you meant that I'm different to my family? And the answer would come back always. This isn't even a scratch of what is meant. To, your future is meant. So meant when to be. you say you, the answer, is that a feeling that you got, or were you like? It was a. It was a. It was an, a, a spiritual confirmation. Okay. That what was supposed to happen happened, or must happen, or is still to happen. So you felt very guided. Very in everything guided that you did. in everything okay. that I did. Okay. As soon as that competition was over and we basically managed to make a name for ourselves as the dynamic duo, the next phase of my life changed when breakdancing came out mm-hmm. in the early, uh, late 70s, early 80s. And so we then added a third member to our group and we became Deadly Force, which is now a breakdance group. And we, ended, we entered the national championships, which we ended up winning. Oh my gosh, and so cool. I actually designed the our out our tracksuits were actually designed out of the American flag. Oh, okay. Because as a child, I have to go back in my life till when I was six. I was in primary school, and for the first time, I watched the movie Pollyanna. Okay. And while watching that movie, and I saw the flag, the American flag flying, the spirit told me I would live in that nation, and I was wow. destined to move to that because that was where the promised land was. That okay. was clearly told to me at, at the age of six. Wow. And so I... I, I didn't know anything at the age of six. <laughs> <laughs> it was... It was it, like I said, it, it, was, it was something that I treasured and that I respected and that I was able to, um, to utilize, not just to my benefit, but to be able to, to help the people around sure. me and the closest circle of friends and, and, and wherever else I could help. So you made the American flag tracksuits. Yes, I made the American track, uh, the American flag track suits and stuff, which were absolutely uh, phenomenal. Again, the, as soon as people saw us on stage for the first time in those suits, they just knew we were coming to play. We, <laughs> we, were, we were bringing the thunder with us, and we wiped the floor with everybody. They just had no chance. Everyone that I'm came, I'm so to, delighted right they now. They came to try and do their breakdance routines, and typically with breakdancers, they never really even had choreographed routines. They would just come stand in a row, one would go in, one would come right. out, one, mm-hmm. and they challenge each other. That mm-hmm. wasn't what we had. We came in with a polished routine in sync, and we were able to do all the breakdancing in between, but always finished. We started and finished as a group, and that just set us apart from anybody else. So after winning the champions, I came back to that question. Is this what you mean? I'm different. He said, nope, it's not even close. So the tragic situation that has plagued my family is alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. On all my dad's side of the family and including my mom's side of the family, my uncles and aunts all drank, they all smoked, they all did drugs and stuff and to one level of extent to the other. 
But as a child, I knew that wasn't my path. I avoided smoking. I avoided drugs. I saw enough drinking on my dad's side to know it didn't belong to me. My mom would smoke one cigarette and light another with another. So she was 60 cigarettes a day. Oh, my goodness. Which was crazy. But um, I knew that wasn't for me either. And then it got to the point where I was really desperate to to try and understand what God's purpose for me was. And so, and at that point, I decided not even to go to any churches. I was just going to say, and I said to myself, I need you to tell me when you're ready, what my purpose needs to be and what church I need to join or anything like that. So the next thing that happened was I ended up um, coming to a situation where my cousin ended up to be very similar to my dad. He would love his drink. And my rule with my dancers was that I would never, ever have alcohol before a show. Mm-hmm. Because the, some of the moves we did were very difficult and very dangerous. And if you didn't have your wits about you, you could get injured. Right. And in one incident I can share with you, we were actually on live on stage, full audience. There's a, a move where I would run full force towards my cousin and we'd dive past each other. Okay. Well, I'd go on top, he'd go underneath, and we'd do it twice. And then the next time he'd go over and I'd go under. And dive past each other, midair. Mm-hmm. Well, this time I come, the first time we go, we do it right the first time. But then the second time, instead of him now wanting to do his part, he goes down where I'm going down. And we just hit heads and oh. we knocked ourselves out on stage. Oh, my <laughs> Embarrassing. But that was the start of the breakup of our relationship. Oh. But then it got worse because then we started touring, not just in our country, but in other countries. And so we started and we went on a tour to Botswana. And we were in Botswana. We had just done a performance. And my cousin and I and Roland, who was part of our group at that point, really took the the, the stage and really set the town on fire the Friday night. Saturday was our final performance. And we were supposed to get back on a train to head back into our country the next day. (laughs) Well, Saturday comes and these two... And Roland was only 17 years old. And sadly for me, um, he decided to follow my cousin and started wanting to be a drinking situation. And, and I just didn't want anything to do that. So after shows, I'd collect all costumes, get the music back from the DJs and go back to my room and call it a night. Mm-hmm. They stayed up all night getting drunk and stuff on the Friday night. Saturday night, they started drinking before the show. Mm. I come into the change room. These two are motherlessly drunk. And I said, and we're going to go on stage with you two in that state. Right. I said, I can guarantee you guys tomorrow when I get on that train, you guys are going your own way. I'm going my way. Good luck to you guys. Oh, you would never make it without us. Blah, blah. I said, okay, we'll see. What you have to understand is the costumes, the music, the mixing, the music, the choreography, teaching them, getting the contracts, phoning. I did everything. Right. And when I when we got paid, I split the money three ways. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to see you two make it without me, but let's see what happens. Well, that night when we danced was a disaster. And I, when we caught the train the next day, I left, got home. Two weeks went by and they were calling and calling and I wouldn't answer the phone to them. Mm-hmm. I was done at that point. So then I decided, okay, what do I do now? And they came and then they actually made a stupid comment to say, well, you know what? We know that you could never make it without us. I said, okay, watch me. And that put fire <laughs> in my belly and I was, I was off at that point. The next thing I know, I went and took the crew that came second to us in the dance competition. I had an audition. I brought the strongest dancers out of that into my life. And then Michael Jackson's Thriller came out, mm-hmm. the album. Okay. Billie Jean, Thriller, Beat It, all those songs were on the radio. And I just had enough material to now make a whole new show. 
And so I decided to come up with a show called Jackson Fever. Jackson Fever was then proposed to the top entertainment icon of DJs and entrepreneurs in terms of um, hiring some of the most impressive shows from all over the world to an exclusive club called the In Place Holiday Inn in, in Salisbury or Rhodesia. Okay. Um, and so, which is now called Arari actually. The, the, the cool thing with that situation was this young naive boy goes into a, a white man's office as a colored boy and wants to now pitch to him that I have a show that you have to put on in this exclusive club, right? <laughs> and the odds are stacked against me because the cabaret acts that were on there were mostly white ones and they dominated and they were paid the top money. Anyone else outside of that wouldn't, excuse me, wouldn't get that money. Mm-hmm. Well, I walked in and convinced this man to at least... I, you know, take a look at the idea. And he looked at me and he says, well, you're pitching me this show, but I have no visual of it. I know that Michael Jackson's the biggest pop star on the planet right now, but, you know, you, you have ideas. I need you to go home. You need to put it in, in a file, you know, in a file, costume designs, the music, how many people in the cast and all that, or your lighting script. And it wasn't something that I'd never even done before. It was all something that I had to learn as I was going along. I'd never been to a dance studio never used mirrors before in my life and I used to copy every of everything of Michael Jackson's moves by watching him on TV and then just practicing in my bedroom mm-hmm. well long story short I get there and I get told you have to go and get your presentation and then come back so I said well I can do that so I went and literally that whole week I just focused on every song I was going to do what that song music would do I incorporated all different genres of dance into the Michael Jackson theme of dances. So, for instance, like Rock and Robin was a rock and roll number. So we did the the, the, the jive and we did a whole bunch of acrobatics in that song. All the uh, like Billie Jean, I, I managed to copy the Billie Jean from the um, uh, the um, Motown Twenty Five Awards. Right. I did the, that. The version. iconic performance with the moonwalk the, in it. Yeah. I did the exact routine. Thriller, I was able to copy the entire video and do that whole thing. Wow. And so, and with no training, no like training. you just self taught. Self taught. When I actually did Billie Jean, also to get me, I, for me, the sky was the limit. I didn't know what I was going to accomplish with just that performance and that show at the time. I went into Alan's, his name was Alan Riddell. I went in to meet with Alan Riddell that next day in his office, and his banqueting manager. True was actually there and he came and was watching this interview and I handed him this folder and he saw the pictures, the costumes, the music and everything else and all of a sudden his face just went like this and he's like, you know what, I think you're onto something here, Faisal, and I think this is this is a great idea. He says, but I'm nervous. And I said, what's that? He says, well, you're black. Well, you're colored. And all the white producers and choreographers wouldn't like you to come and perform here because you'd be competition mm. for them. And then True was white turns to him and says, Alan, are you out of your mind? Do you truly understand what this kid is offering you? He says, if you don't hire this kid, I tell you, you're going to be making the biggest mistake of your life. Wow. And that caught his attention. And with that, Alan said, you know what? Actually, you're right. I'm the guy that makes the decision of who performs in our club, and no one should dictate that to me. So, Faisal, you've got the job. How long would it take you to get your, your show ready? I said, I need a month's rehearsals and everything to get the stage ready. Plus, you already have a show running and we got to wait for that to finish. Sure. And each contract was always given 30 days. I get to a point in my life now where I'm now given an opportunity. Well, sure enough, 
I changed that whole situation around. I hold, I got the show down to a T. Then Alan comes back to me after the first or uh, first um, run through of the show. He says to me, I love the show, but it's got a problem. I said, what's that? He says, well, this is a nightclub and men are mostly in the audience. They're not going to want to see a bunch of guys. They want mm. women in the show. I mm. said, well, Michael's got three sisters. I can put three ladies in the show. No problem. And I said, my show is not about skimpiness and, and any of that malak. It's about dancing and entertainment. So as long as you and I are on that same page, that's where I draw the line. He says, oh, they don't have to reveal skin or anything like that. If, you know, as long as they dressed, you know, nicely, that's fine. That's it. Then we're on the same page. About an hour before I'm due to take the stage, it's our opening night. One of the ladies that was actually the top producer. And the sad thing is this lady who's white was the top model in our country. Hmm. All her outfits were made by my mother. Oh, wow. And I knew her. She knew me. She even used to have, she used to play with me when I was going to primary school. And so she owned this whole uh, dance company and her shows were the ones who were predominantly running, running the circuit, I should say. I get to a point in my life where I already knew the spirit had told me, they're going to pull all the DJ equipment out of, the, out of this disco. So you, what you need to do is get a backup plan. Have someone in the, in the wings. That's that is a have... very specific direction. <laughs> Correct. Well, Alan O'Dell, an hour before the show is meant to happen, comes running backstage. We're all ready to go on. And he says, I don't even know how to tell you this. I don't know how to tell you this. I said, tell me what? He says, well, you're not going to be able to go on stage. I said, why? He says, because the, Dale Harding has just gone and pulled all the, the, the disco equipment out of the, 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 the DJ box. The dancers start crying. They're all upset. And he's in a panic. And, I, and it's a f Friday night. No one's going to be open to get new disco equipment. The room is packed with people. And how is he going to explain to them that they're not going to, they pay good money for an opening night and now nothing's going to happen? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm calm as a daisy. And <laughs> they were looking at me as if to say, why aren't you freaking out? I said, well, sadly... I know what you guys don't know. I said, give me five minutes. And we'll, I said, Alan, you go and make an announcement that there's a slight delay, but the show will still be going on. She's sitting in the front row with all her dancers and stuff and her dance company and all laughing and drinking. And they feel like they, they've kind of overcome and they've beat me to this situation. I called my guy, Robert, who actually happened to be an engineer from our local TV studios. He brought in better equipment and actually got it managed to actually have everything set up in less than 15 minutes. Wow. He then comes and says, Face, I got your back. You're done. You're ready to go. You got the best video. You got the best sound, best lights. You're good to go. What I also added to the show was to do Billie Jean. I wasn't just walking on the stage. I actually, they actually had a, a spaceship constructed for me with lights and everything and a mechanical door that would bring me down, land on stage, oh and I'd walk gosh. out onto the on a floor of, of, of smoke. For Thriller, awesome. I had coffins that were in the ceiling that would bring six coffins down out of the ceiling onto the floor into load into smoke, and then the zombies would come out. Wow. So those kind of effects had never been seen in the country. Mm -hmm. I was the very first Michael Jackson lookalike to perform with a 20-foot video screen behind me, and I was having his videos on the back, and I'm dancing in sync with the video. Dressed <laughs> so exactly cool. the same. And if I showed you photos on my, my phone, as Michael Jackson, you'd understand. Anyway, so the show, she's now mesmerized. How did I pull that off? Mm -hmm. But she's sitting there. And of course, I used that as energy for me. Because when I came on stage for my first song, knowing that she was responsible for what she had done, mm -hmm. 
I used So she to, tried to sabotage She you. tried to yeah. sabotage the show because she didn't want the competition. Right. And that show just blew all the box office records from day one. Within two days, Alan calls me into his office. He says, Faisal, I need to show you something. He says, in all the years that this club actually existed, you need to understand that the numbers in what we did in bar takings, in door takings, you couldn't imagine what you've caused. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, look, this is Dale, who would try to sabotage my show. This is one of her biggest shows. Mm -hmm. This is her numbers for the full month. You've only been doing this for two days. Look at your numbers. He says, by the end of the week, he calls me back into his office. He says, you, you got me into trouble. Now my boss has come to talk to me and told me, you're not able to even do it just for a month. He wants you for three months now. Mm. Now all of, all of a sudden I'm thinking, okay, there's that question again. So I go back into my room and I'm like, is this what you meant about I'm going to be different? And the spirit says, not even close. I'm like, you can't be serious. So I'm just amazing? Like this, this isn't even the point yet? I just get to be amazing right now? <laughs> Something like that. But the fortunate thing is, I, in my humbleness, I stayed true to myself. Next thing I know, I'm appearing on all the magazine covers, newspaper covers, TV shows. The top pop show on a Saturday night would feature me on it and stuff. And so everyone in the country knew who I was pretty quick. Wow. And I was mesmerized that that wasn't it. There was still more. And I'm thinking, well, what is it? But then there's a tragic twist because now all of a sudden my show's doing well. I'm doing well. I'm earning lots of money. I'm traveling all over the world. I mean, I could earn in a night what my mom would take a whole month to earn yeah working seven days a week right and the fun part was my mom would come in and she i because i used to work nights i'd be sleeping when she goes to work and she's like you kids you think money grows on trees all the time right and I, blah, 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 and she my mom had never been on a plane before and so i'd actually surprised her after my very first running of jackson fever it was extended for another month they wanted it to go for three months and i cut that short I said, the problem with overexposure is it people get tired of it, you get bored. I don't want to do that. I want to take the show on the road, take it to other parts of the country. That is pretty savvy yep. for, you know, being so young. I think a lot of people would just be like, bring it on, keep bringing it on. Yeah, no, I had to protect myself. And the fun part too is everything that I did, negotiate and stuff, was never in contract. Most of the time it was verbal. Right. And as a dancer, it's... It's really scary because you could hire me. I could do do a show, have thousands of people watch it, and then you get all the money. And then when you choose not to pay me, I can't say, give me my dancing back. It's gone, right? So I had to find ways to also get around that to make sure. But I always believed in myself enough that you cross me once, you'll never see me again. Okay. But then I go to your competitor and can come perform in his club right across the road from you. And then guess where everyone's going? Right. Try and play with me. You will lose. <laughs> So the next thing I know, I'm in a situation where one of my fiancés, actually, um, she was actually the daughter to the, the British High Commissioner to my country at the time. Okay. And we were engaged to be married, and I get the news that she's pregnant, and I'm over the moon. And she was in college at the time. She was 19, and we were going to have our first child together, and I was so excited. And we went and met with her parents to tell them the news and they were kind of mixed emotions and I couldn't tell whether they were happy or not. Or, And we were engaged to be married already. Right, right. 
and I was earning enough to support us. We didn't need their help and so forth. But anyway, long story short, I ended up turning around and saying, I'm excited to be a dad. And, you know, if you know, she wants to finish school and do whatever, she'd be able to do that. She only, she'd only start showing by the time she starts showing, she'd be finished with school and we'd be able to start our family. And, if, you know, and I, I work three nights a week. I'm home every day. I can look after the baby. Right, right. No problem. Seems to be working out fine. Hundred percent. Well, the next week I come back and they invited me to dinner and was not there. And I'm like, where's? Oh yeah, that's the thing we called you to have dinner with us. I said, well, where is she? And my face got concerned. And next thing I know, they flew out of the country to England. They forced her to have an abortion behind <gasps> my back. Oh no. And so. And then they called me another week later because by then I was done with them as a family. I just, I mean, how do I trust them? How do right, I trust her? Right. She promised she wouldn't kill my child, but she did. And so she's crying. She phoned them to tell them she's not going to get off the plane. Did she want it? Did she want to She promised me she wouldn't do that. She promised me. Yeah. And we were happy together. We were engaged. We we're going to get married. Why right. would you want to get married to me and then kill the child without my permission or sure. without my say-so? Sure. And how do we even have a relationship after that? Yeah. You just can't. Well, as if that wasn't bad enough, she then calls her parents and says, I won't get off the plane that lands bringing me back if he's not there to meet me so I can explain. And he's her dad, who's the high commissioner to England in our country, calls and I'm supposed to just answer the phone and I'm telling my mom, I have nothing to say to the man. Son, I raised you better. Talk to the man. Mm. So I get the phone and, yeah, sure. He says, Face, I know that you're upset and stuff. This child is really in a mess and she won't get off the plane if you're not there with us. Please, please, will you come with us? I said, sure. So we get there. I meet them up. We get off the plane. She's crying. She's in my arms. She won't let go. She's shivering. I mean, I, she was in a, she had black rings around her eyes. She was a mess. And so go back to her parents' house. I stayed for three days straight. This child has cried for three days straight mm -hmm. because of what had happened. But it got to the point where I knew that there was just nothing more to do in this relationship because of what she had done and the pain I was in at the time. I hadn't even had time to grieve. I was just really angry. And so I didn't know how to, to kind of, you know, wrap this all around. And then the other thing is I'm asking myself, well, what's the, how is this part of the plan? Right. You know, we're supposed to be happy in this planet. Why, why are we going through this trial? But it was to make me understand there are highs and there are lows in life and you need to go through all those to understand and how to navigate through them. Well, the next thing I know, I'm making a decision and I said, you know, as much as I love you and as much as, you know, I had wanted to have a future with you, this is now gone and what you did is just not repairable. Hmm. I don't know if I can ever overcome this. Even if we had another child later on, it's still going to be a problem for me. So the best thing is to cut it clean and just move out. Well, one of my backup dancers, well, one of the girls that had actually become one of my backup dancers, during that period that she was in England for about 10 days, my dancers knew I was in a lot of pain mm -hmm. and I still had to perform every night and do my show and I was really, really in a bad place. And I'd always, after the shows, I'd go straight to the room in the hotel and just put myself and tuck myself away. And they said, oh, you have to meet this incredible young lady. We know you're done with you need to meet someone else and move on with your life. I said, it's not just my child is dead, move on with your life. Right. You've got to process that. I need time. I'm not interested in a relationship. No matter who she is, no matter how gorgeous she is, I don't care. Well, the worst part was 
they bring this young lady to come and introduce me. All my dancers, they're all like troops bringing this young lady to meet me and I'm supposed to just date her straight away. I said, no, nah, you guys, I know you're trying to do me a favor, but I don't need your favor. Yeah. I'll be polite to this girl, thank her for her time, wish her well, and that was it. Close the door. Then she goes with another producer choreographer from, from the nightclub who took her to his house that same night that I met her. And he tried to get his way with her and she wanted nothing to do with him. Mm-hmm. So she got into a little bit of a tiff with him, scratched his face and ran out of his apartment and came running back into the to the, the club and told my dancers about it. And they brought her back to my room all in a mess and she was crying and stuff. So I said, look, you know, come on in, you know, let me get you some, some tea or coffee or whatever you want and I'll take you home with my dancers. And she said, okay. And so took her home and I said, look, I, I don't mean to, to be disrespectful to you, a beautiful young lady. She had actually been nominated as the number one model of the country that same oh month. Gosh. I had just been nominated as... You the, seem to know a lot of really, like, highly ranked people. <laughs> like, like I, everybody's I, somebody. I didn't ask for it. It just came into my life. <laughs> the, the fun part was that same month, I had been nominated as the best producer choreographer in the country. Mm. And she'd been nominated as the best model in the country. and But that wasn't where my head was at. I wasn't interested in any of that. I was just in a really deep, dark place. And I said to her quite politely, I said, look, you know, it's not that you're not attractive or that I don't, wouldn't like to be in a relationship with you. The thing is, it's the timing. I, right now, she said, please just know that whenever you're ready, I'll be here. Just call whenever you want hmm. and I'll, I'll wait. Wow. So, okay, fine. That's great. And I didn't call her for a while. But then two months went by and then I would just not stop calling my mom's house and she wouldn't give me up and stuff. And I said, the only way I can end this relationship is to start a new relationship with somebody else. And then she gets the message and she'll leave me alone. Then she made the biggest mistake of her life because then she went and dated my best friend as a way to get back at me. And I just gave her her blessing and said, you know what? I wish you two very well. I'm off to the races. (laughs) And so I ended up in a relationship with and uh, she became one of my, my backup dancers, and she was phenomenal. She was a gymnast as well, so she fitted really strong in the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was my actual partner in the show and stuff, and we toured all over Southern Africa together, and then we had a beautiful daughter together. And that pain of having that first child lost was now kind of not filled, but compensated for in a way. Sure. And all I ever wanted was to be a father and to be you know, to be to be able to be married and have a happy family. So, <laughs> this story will really bring goosebumps to you. I was in a situation where I had already performed in South Africa and the agent that I had worked for was the largest agent in the entire country of South Africa. She was exclusive. And so she specifically came to have me come and work for her. Within two weeks, her best dancer came to me and told me, this woman is making a lot of money and she's crooking you. She's paying you 20% of what you should be getting. Mm. And I was like, are you serious? And she opens the books and showed me the numbers. And I couldn't believe it. I caught the same plane that day and I told you, you crossed me once. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Got on a plane. She was in my country. I was in her country. We flew past each other. When I landed, she landed and she picked up the phone saying, hey, you're supposed to be at work tonight at this. I said, I'm not coming anywhere near that country now. What are you talking? I said, look at your books and tell me if you've been fair and truthful to me. And then she just went quiet. I said, that's the last time we'll talk. And I put the phone down. Oh my gosh. And that was the end of it. (laughs) Two years after that. That takes so much 
self-confidence to oh, just be like, but that's I, it. I believed in myself. I, and I knew what I it's had. A, it's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful. I love it. I get, so two years, we go two years from that incident to when I'm now with, with the baby. Her parents kind of accepted that I was in her life. They moved to another house and gave us their house to live in. And we'd stay there for like six months. Spirit tells me, the phone is going to ring. You need to ask if she'll go and live with you in South Africa. And so I go to Satsuka. I went to go to I said, I need to ask you a question. And I said, uh, if I get a contract to go work in South Africa, will you come with me? She said, oh, I'm your fiance. I'm your wife. What are you talking about? We have a baby. Of course, I'll go with you. She got annoyed because I had to ask her three times the same question. By the third time, she was starting to lose it. I said, I, she said, why do you need to know that? And I've told you already, I would go with you. I said, because the phone is going to ring and I need to know how, what answer I need to give. What phone? What are you talking about? Cring, the phone rang. I walked to the phone. I pick up this phone and I said, hi, this is Faisal. Yes, I would love to come and work for you again. However, you will have problems getting my visa. And she starts laughing. You need to understand. I, it's like I was talking to the head of the mafia in South Africa. Okay, okay. This woman had immigration. She had everything. The police. She was actually married to a policeman under her wing. If she wanted you arrested, you'd have you picked up the next day. That's how much power this woman had. Hmm. She says, Face, you know who you're talking to? I said, trust me, you won't get my visa. You'll get it eventually, but not straight away. She says, watch me. Two days later, she phoned me. She says, how did you know I couldn't get the visa? I said, you'll get it. You'll figure it out. Next day, she phones. She says, oh, thanks for letting me sleep on it. I kind of figured it out. In the meantime, I actually explained to her the reason why the visa was blocked. Her parents had an older sister who was working at the embassy in our country for South Africa. They had me blacklisted in South Africa, so I could never get a work permit to come work there. So then we come back from South... No, so then they were so upset that I... And honestly, by the time I got to South Africa with my show... Um, my agent figured out that if she got me a visa to go to Namibia first... Namibia is part of South Africa and okay. has no borders. Okay. They can fly me to Namibia and the South African consulate had no right to stop my visa. Mm -hmm. They'd have to issue it. So they issued my visa. I got into Namibia on a work permit. I was able to work there for two days and then just drive into South Africa. Now I was in South Africa and they couldn't yeah. touch me. Yeah. And that's how I got into South Africa. But then the forces that be came with their parents to have me arrested. So what they didn't realize was that the head of immigration was a white lady that was my biggest fan at my Michael Jackson show. Oh my gosh. Oh so they try to have me arrested. I get a phone call from this immigration attorney and she's, I mean, lady, and she phones, she says, Face, you better get to my office right now. The, the cops are on their way to pick you up. She says, don't even pack a bag. Just get the baby in the car and come to my office. You'll be fine here. I get to her office. She picks up the radio and she says, you know what, guys, you don't have to pick him up. He's here. He's going to leave on his own accord. She says, Trace, you don't have to leave. I know you're scared. I can fix this for you if you trust me. I said, I'm not playing this game. I have a wife and a kid to think about. Mm -hmm. South Africa is not the only country I can dance in. Sure. I can go work as Michael Jackson in any country I want. So trust me, I'm done. If that's the hospitality I get before being here, for being the color that I am, I'm out. Right. And so I flew back. We got back to Zimbabwe. And when we were there for about two weeks, I said to we're actually going to be going next week to somewhere that has lots of water. And she's like, what are you talking about now? Cring, cring, the phone rings. I pick up the phone, this guy, I've never met this guy before. Faisal, I've heard about your show. I really want to hire you. I got this big contract. Would you come and work for me? I'm like, where is it? She says, Malawi. 
I'm like, okay, Lake Malawi is one of the biggest mm -hmm. lakes in Africa. Mm -hmm. So we went and worked there for three months. And I'm at the height of my career. I'm loving life. I'm with the woman of my dreams. I have a beautiful daughter. Nothing can go wrong. Well, <laughs> a bit too soon. Problem is... How old are you at this point? I'm 23. Okay. And my, my fiancé is 20. Okay. And we're going to get married, and next thing I know, my daughter gets kidnapped <gasps> by her grandparents. Oh, my They actually gosh. took my daughter and moved her to Mozambique to family and left her there for four years, and I couldn't find her anywhere. Oh, my gosh. So are you still with her? She can't find her anywhere either? That was what led me to what I call point zero in my life. Okay. I'll come back to that. Okay. I'm in a situation where I actually have a problem because comes home one night with a white friend that she hadn't seen for four years from high school. And she says, oh, could you mind if I go out with my friends? And I said, go ahead, please have, have fun. She turns around and says, um, they go out, but she doesn't, she was supposed to come home at 11 at night. I'm at home with my daughter. She's asleep. Turns out that she's actually gone out with her friends and... She doesn't come back till three in the morning. Mm -hmm. No, it was five in the morning. And I'm worried out of my mind thinking she's supposed to be 11. You know, but she comes home. She's picking up clothes to go back out. Not even, okay. sorry. I, I said, what the heck's going on? Oh, we, we decided we're going to go swimming. I said, go swimming. You went swimming at four o'clock and you don't come back until silly hours of the morning. And now you're going swimming again. Yeah. And then where were you all night? Oh, well, we decided to have a barbecue and then we decided to go to this club and we had fun and I borrowed her clothes and we had a great time and, and we got plans to go to this. Do you mind if you just, if I can go one more time? I said, you know what? Go ahead, have fun. Again, the whole night. By the next morning she came home, I actually had my bags packed. Oh my God. I said, I'm not playing the silly wagon. I said, if you're embarrassed as my fiance to, be tech, to take me and your baby to go meet with your friends, yeah. you didn't invite us along. Yeah. That tells me all I need to know. So if that's where your head's at and that's what you want, have at it. She starts crying. Oh, no, that's not what this is. I'm just confused. And I said, no, there's no confusion for me. I've lived with this prejudice all my life. And you're the last person I would expect that from. So if that's what you want to do, have at it. <laughs> so I packed my bags and I left. And during that whole process, my daughter went. I moved to my sister's house, who wasn't too far away from my daughter, so I could at least see her. And so then I did a farewell concert for my daughter, which was a hour and a half concert. It was Jackson Fever 1, 2, and 3, all in one night. And how old was your daughter at my this My daughter point? was 18 months old. Okay. She got taken and never saw again. She didn't miss him for 27 years. What? 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 Yeah. I'll You're come. telling me you literally have never seen her again? Oh, I, I found her three years ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but, but I, okay. Okay. That uh, kind of blew my top a little bit. From that, that circumstance, I basically got to what I call point zero in my life. This is now where I fell on my knees, tears rolling down my face. And I said to God, what is this all about? I need answers and I need them now. I'm not playing this game anymore of wasting time, waiting for you to tell me what the purpose of life is. Where did I come from? I know I came from you. So why am I on this earth? And if I am on this earth, where am I going to go to? I need to know. Mm -hmm. It was a New Year's Eve of 89, 
1989 going into 1990 when the New Year's Eve was happening. I'm on my knees 30 minutes before fireworks start going off outside. My dancers had wanted me to go with them. I had a whole new set of dancers in Europe and I was traveling and I'd actually been invited to be the number one Michael Jackson lookalike in the world performing at Disney World in Japan. And I, so I ended up going and I ended up um, getting to London, but I got on, I get off the plane and my agent that was representing me didn't even come to meet me and I'm stranded in the airport by myself. Hmm. If I hadn't come with friends from Zimbabwe, I would have I'd probably sent on the plane back. But um, anyway, he broke his leg and was in hospital, didn't oh tell gosh. me that he sent someone to meet me or nothing. And so they kept me for almost two weeks before he ends up showing up to come pick me up. And then I lost my contract in Japan because they didn't know where I was. Yeah. And so he says, well, don't worry, I'll get you gigs. And so I ended up using London as my base. And then, so, but while I was in London, I had been in London for about, it was November the 11th that I I left to go to to England. And then I fell on my knees. Um, No, it was a year after that. I mean, within three months of my daughter going missing, all my hair, eyelashes, everything fell out. I was completely From bored. stress? From stress, alopecia, everything, all in three months. Wow. And it took me two years to grow my hair back. By the end of the first year, I was missing my child so much. The pain just got so much for me that I, I, I just, I was lost. Did you know at that point that it had been your her grandparents that had taken her or you just knew that someone had taken her you had no, no idea I had no idea oh my she gosh that is so traumatizing well you're a mom you know you have kids yourself yeah, can yeah. you imagine raising them until they're 18 and then never see them again no yeah, exactly so I'm I'm in what I call point zero in my life and I need those answers and half an hour into prayers those fireworks are going off and my dancers had invited me to go out that night with them to to celebrate the new year and I said I know I need to be on my own tonight and I was staying at one of my dancers house that night and I said I'll babysit grandma because she's on her own in the house I'll stay with her you guys go have fun and they said sure I'm like yeah you guys go and have fun because we had just come back from a European tour of dancing in, in Spain and Greece and a whole bunch of other countries we'd gone to so I get back and um, I'm in the room on myself and I fell on my knees and I'm praying as fervently as I can and tears rolling down my face and I want answers and the Spirit says, you will get your answers soon. And sure enough, I put that in my mind and I forget about it and two weeks later I'm standing in a pizza hut and I'm leaning against the counter and these two Americans walk in and they've got these black tags on them and they say, um, they're talking to each other and I could tell they had American accents. Mm-hmm. And so I'm standing there and I'm thinking, and the spirit says to me, go talk to these two young men. And I'm like, why would I talk to two strange people? They sat down, they were ordering their pizza. Spirit said a second time, go talk to them. I'm like, no, nope, not happening. Third time, it was like the spirit pushed me in the back and I said, okay, I'll go talk to them. So I walk over to these two kids. Hi, my name is Faisal. What are you guys doing in England? I can tell you guys are from America. I'm Elder Robinson. I'm Elder Proctor and... We are missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I said, oh, never heard of your church. Mm-hmm. What do you guys do? Oh, we just teach people the basic discussions, plan of salvation, where are you from? Where you... I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> He's looking at the sky right now. He's looking heavenward. <laughs> are you serious? So I write down my name and number. I hand them this piece of paper. I said, you got to come and meet with me. And they're looking at me as if, really? Like, Absolutely. <laughs> Please come and see me. So I'm thinking, great, I found my answer. And I go home and I'm waiting, I'm waiting two weeks. No, these guys don't show up. 
I'm like, okay, what? that's crazy to me. But <laughs> so what happened? I'm like, where are they? No missionaries. So anyway, my understanding of missionaries is like, if you can get any interest at all, you're like biting on like a yeah, focusing a, in. There's definitely a good reason behind it, though. Two weeks go by and there's a knock on the door on a Sunday when I'm not expecting anyone. And I open the door and guess what? There's these two missionaries. The same two? The same two. Elder, Elder Proctor ended up actually having a kidney stone and ended up in hospital. Oh, my gosh. And there was no cell phones back then, so they couldn't, couldn't call me. Right. And so that was basic. And he was kind of bedridden for those two weeks, which is why I didn't see them. But I kid you not, the moment they walked in to that house... The feelings I got, the spiritual warmness that filled that. It was the middle of winter in England, which is a wet, damp, cold. Yes, yes. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. So we were so hot in the house that I even had to take the... They took their jackets off. It was so incredible. And we started basically going through these get-to-know-each-other discussions. And first day, there was no lessons or anything. I was just, you know, getting to know one another. And the moment they walked out the house, I, the house went cold. And I was hmm. like, what is that? So they were due to come back the next day. And again, they came in. And the funny part was I, when they came in, I offered them a cup of tea. And that was tradition in England. Sure. And they said, oh, we'll have water. I'm like, you guys are nuts. Is it a white thing or is this a Mormon <laughs> thing or what is this? How can I offer you tea and you want water? It's not, it's not in the middle of winter. They're like, yeah, yeah, water. I said, okay. By the second time, I figured it out. The second time they came back, I offered them tea, and they said, no, we'll have water. I said, whoa, stop. You guys are not allowed to drink tea, right? And they said, and I just made a fresh pot. And they said, no, we're not. I said, oh, the tea just went straight down the sink. That was the last time I drank tea. Wow. Grabbed my glass of water, and there I was doing <laughs> The six discussions went through like, it was like whirlwind to me. The story of how we were all created, how we were all sent to this planet and chose to come to this planet and where we'd be after this life was phenomenal. It just made sense. It was like me putting a glove on my hand and it just made sense. And so after my discussions, they offered me to get baptized and I was on fire. I went, got baptized and I was the man. And first fast and testimony meeting I go to, I go and I'm sitting between the two elders in the back pew, either one flanking me. And I'd never been to a fast and testament meeting before. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there between these two missionaries. For anyone listening who doesn't know what that is, fast and testimony meeting is the opportunity for anybody in the congregation to get up and bear their own testimony of the, their feelings about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Thank you for clarifying mm -hmm. that. So with that said, three quarters of the way through the sacrament meeting, I decided, to, okay, it's my turn to go just say thank you to the missionaries, the bishop, and all the members from welcoming me into the, into the ward. And I get to the top. I get to the pulpit, and the words are not coming. And I'm standing there, and I'm standing there, and my chest is just going boom, boom, boom. And I'm, so I said, you know, I, 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 the one thing I can say is I'm thankful and grateful to what's happened to me. I, I, I want to thank Heavenly Father for answering my prayers, because that was what I specifically asked for. And I now know where my home is. And I also said, thank you to the missionaries, thank you to the bishop, thank you to everybody, but please excuse me for what I'm about to do because I don't know how else to express myself. With that, I just shut up. I walked back to the bishop, went running straight towards the pulpit, front somersault over, landed in the middle of the aisle and flick-flacked all the way back to the aisle. Welcome to the gospel and sat down. I love it. 
For anyone who didn't catch it, he flipped over the pulpit on back into the into the uh, the middle of the aisle. The aisle, yeah. Okay. Wow. I'm sure that caused quite a stir. Oh, I couldn't go anywhere after that. <laughs> that went through the stake like wildfire. <laughs> it was crazy. And so I had been baptized. I was welcome to the church. And then two weeks later, I received the Aaronic Priesthood, which is another one of my dreams. Now, when I ask the question, why am I different? I understand. Because right now, I'm the only elder in the entire family right. that holds the priesthood. Mm-hmm. And... At the time that I joined the church, too, there was still Black Satan had the priesthood and all this stuff. And I was being told all these stories. And Satan has a way of trying to mishmash things up so that it can bring in contention and stuff. And trying to use the racial card to have me deny my faith. I wasn't brought into the church by having someone come find me. I was led to them by my own prayer and my own yearning and my own inspiration and my own conversations I was having with a father in heaven that loves me as his own son. Mm-hmm. And it, my message is that every single person upon the planet that is searching for truth has the same ability, if asked with real intent, to find the same answer and will end up in the same place. Sure. Because you can't deny truth. Truth cannot be changed. So, having joined the church, the miracles were about to start, so I thought. And sure enough, I wanted to go on a mission. The bishop said, no. The bishop said, no. I said, why wouldn't you? I was 25. I want to go on a mission. I'm tired of relationships. I want to go serve a mission. And he said, you can't. I said, why not? He says, because that's not where the Lord wants you. The Lord wants you married. And I'm like, whoa. I've had enough relationships. Which part of my English are you not listening to? <laughs> and he's like, the Lord wants you married. He says, okay, do me a favor. Go home, fast, pray about it. And if you come back and you want to actually go on a mission, I'll go to the prophet myself for you. I said, okay. Wow. So I go home, fast, pray, come back. He dejected. <laughs> I said, okay, you're the judge in Israel. Who am I going to argue with you? But I don't know who I'm supposed to marry. Sure enough, and I ignore it. And the day that I got baptized was the day that a young eight-year-old got baptized in a different ward. And the missionaries that baptized me were responsible for her too. And they invited me to her baptism later in the afternoon. So we shared the same baptism date. I met her, met her family, met her mom. Didn't think anything of her as a wife because it's a very attractive young lady. She was a single mom. She was a single mom with two kids, but I didn't think she was single. I assumed she was married. Yeah. Didn't even think of marriage, like I said, was not on my mind. I wasn't looking for relationships. But sure enough, never even thought of Jackie as a wife. She a British lady? British lady. Okay. And so I come back. Everything's going fantastic. Five weeks later, the missionary that had actually baptized me and confirmed me into the church had swapped out. Well, no, the one, one of the missions that baptized me had actually left the area and a new one had come in and he was from Canada. His name is Jason Julian, Elder Julian. And he and I and Elder Robinson, we were like brothers. We were inseparable. I, every time I would go on P-Days, the missionaries would come, I'd feed them, and we'd go play sports together, and I, I couldn't get enough of the missionaries. And so anyway, he was getting married, and his wife was the biggest Michael Jackson fan. <laughs> and so to surprise her, yeah, she told, honey, you're not going to believe I actually had the, the, the blessing of baptizing Michael Jackson number two. <laughs> and send her, as soon as she saw the photo, she, she, she was my biggest fan, bless her heart. And so I went to Canada to actually go and um, perform at their wedding reception. That's another funny story. That performing at, she she didn't know I was going to perform in full costume or anything. Only her husband knew. 
And I said, and she wanted me to dance. And I said, oh, that's never going to happen. I said, you can never afford me. Um, <laughs> but, um, and so I said, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do the, the, the best man thing for your husband, but I dancing no, that's, that's, I don't want to take anything away from your wedding. It's about you too. And that's all. And she, she, she actually stopped asking me in the end, but she didn't know that there was something coming. And so when they hired this hall, it was a, a uh, it was a community center that had three venues having weddings at the same time. Okay. And I had to leave the venue into the dad's camper to go get it dressed into my Michael Jackson stuff. <laughs> All the other secret costumes were hidden already underneath uh, behind a, a screen. So she had no idea, and she was having a good time in a. And then finally, Jason's now trying to talk to his bride and says, "Honey, I got a surprise for you." Da 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 da. And then my music starts playing and I walk in. But what had happened was I had to come from the car park to go. And all the kids from the weddings were playing outside. Right. They see me and they think I'm the real Michael Jackson. So they <laughs> run and come call all the other wedding reception guests from the other weddings. And they all now flood into our wedding. You can sit anywhere and stand. It was crazy. So I do a half an hour performance. And I promise you, I mean, Amelia was just crying. She couldn't believe what was happening. <laughs> So, but the cool reason I bring that story up is because when I, when Jason and, and Amelia had gone on their honeymoon, Al, um, Jason had left his missionary album on the side of his bed and, and I was sharing, um, there was two twin beds in his, his room and I was staying in there with him. And so I go and I open up this album and looking at photos of his mission and all the people he was teaching in England and stuff. And I look at this one photo and I look at Jackie and the spirit says, that's your wife. And I'm like, whoa. My wife. I wish I could borrow a little bit of this, like, really definitive direction in your life. Because I, <laughs> honestly, I, I, I'm like the opposite. God to me is like, I may give you a hunch now and then. But really, I, you're just going to have to figure some stuff out. <laughs> like, this is, this is insane to me. Okay, so he says, that's your wife. He says, that's my wife. And I thought, well, that's crazy. I get on a plane and I drive, fly all the way back to England. Now you have to understand, I get back to England. I'd already signed a contract. I was only going to be in England for four days. Then I'm going to fly back to the States because I was, I'd was i signed a two-year contract to be Michael Jackson on five-star cruise ships in the Caribbean. Oh, oh, okay. I'd already signed the contract. I get back and the first person I asked when I was staying with an LDS family and they, they, they were like my adopted family and... They were going to let me stay with them for four days, then I was going to fly out. And while I'm at Fred's house, well, Fred came to pick me up at the airport. I'm driving back to his house. And the first person I said, oh, by the way, how's Jackie? And he's like, why would you ask about Jackie? She's not even in your ward. You don't even know her. You know, I said, no, just asking because last I heard she'd injured her arm or something. She was in a cast. She says, yeah, no, she's doing okay. It's like, great. So I ignored it. That Sunday, he was having a cottage meeting for young single adults to come. And he said, please make sure that um, if Jackie um, was invited, um, she she couldn't. Excuse me. She she was invited, but she couldn't actually go into. She couldn't come and attend because she couldn't find um, uh, babysitters in time. And so when I was invited, I said I couldn't because I'd already committed to go out with the missionaries on a joint teach with some investigators. And so I ended up leaving the house, catching a train, meeting the missionaries, which turned out to be. All the appointments, three of them canceled on the wow. same night. Okay. So I thought, okay. well, I'll just catch the, t the train back. I get back and I'm walking in. Fred's leaving. I said, where are you going? He says, oh, I'm going to pick up Jackie. She actually managed to get a babysitter last minute. She's she's coming to this fireside thing. 
He picks her up, comes back. There's me, her, and his daughter, Catherine. There were 16 other adults that were invited. None of them showed up. <laughs> there was just the three so of us. So it was basically like a date. <laughs> we just got... I wasn't even looking for a date either. Remember, I'm leaving in two days. Sure. And so I'm thinking, yeah, I didn't think much of it. So, But we had a fun time. We had a meal. We had watched a video. We read scriptures. We played games, cards. We just had a fun time. And the next thing we knew... Fred wakes up for, for work the next morning. We're talking all through the night for three of us. It was so fun. Four o'clock in the morning, the spirit says to me, ask her on a date. You want to take her to dinner and something? And I don't want to ask this woman to dinner. I can't get her hopes up. I'm leaving. Why would I want to ask her? The spirit said, ask her for a date. Second time, not happening. Third time, it's like, again, I get pushed in the back. I'm like, okay, I get it. All right, Jackie, hey, do you think you'd like to have dinner with me as friends? And, you know, just... Absolutely, I'd love to do that. I'm like, okay, great. So she gets taken by Fred, who's going to work back to her house. I go to bed because I'm shattered at this point. I'm asleep, and 12 o'clock, the phone rings. Fred's wife comes and wakes me and says, Hey, you got a phone call. I said, Who? She said, It's Jackie. I'm like, Jackie, Jackie. She said, Jackie, we just left this morning. Oh, okay. I get <laughs> oh, up. That Jackie. That Jackie. <laughs> Hi, Jack, what's up? Oh, uh, yeah, well, I figured because you're leaving in a couple of days, rather than wait till dinner, why don't you come and have lunch and then we can, and then I'll make dinner for you at my house. I'm like, oh, sure. Well, let me have a shower first and then I'll meet you and catch the train. That same day, I said, Jackie, I, I know this might scare you, but something, when I was in Canada, something said that there's something meant to happen. She says, I already know what you're going to ask me. She says, but I can't say yes until I have you meet my kids. I said, oh that's, why, that's why I actually invited you to dinner to meet my kids. So, so had she, she felt also the same thing? The, exactly. I get to a house that day. The kids, remember my somersault, the steak, <laughs> Michael Jackson, marrying my mom. They were all on board before I even met me. And so that was, she says, well, that was easy, wasn't it? <laughs> He's just introduction I had to make. We were married within five weeks. Oh, my goodness. Two weeks later, we found out why. The night before we, we actually got married, we, she found a lump in her breast, and it was, it was terminal. At the time, we didn't know. And she cried, and I was saying, why would you be so upset? And we haven't even had a biopsy done. You know, you're so distraught. Where's your faith? You know, you're not going anywhere. I just married you. You're not going to leave my life. It's not going to happen. I won't let it because I know who God is kind of thing, attitude and all that. Like, I'm in control of that situation. But um, sure enough, two weeks later, we found out the results come back and it's the worst cancer possible. Unbeknown to me, prior to marrying her, she had just lost her dad the year before. He was a cab driver in England, complained of back pain, went to the uh, to the doctors after months of, of ignoring it, finally goes to the doctor and the doctor says, sorry, I can't help you, you need to go straight to the hospital. And I don't think you're going to have good news when you get there. And he's like, what? And so he gets there and they wouldn't even let him go home. He was basically told he had the worst cancer and they put him straight on chemo and radiotherapy oh and stuff. He gosh. was dead in two weeks. <gasps> yep. And so she was by his bedside when he passed. And it was the worst cancer that eats you from the inside out. Oh, and it was, so, so the cancer diagnosis for her was extra heavy. Correct. Yeah. And she knew what was coming yeah, her way too. Yeah. Same cancer. Oh, my gosh. And it started in the breast, and they had to even remove that one breast um, about two, three months after. And um, and they said, we never have kids. And 
by the time we found out that she had cancer, she was already pregnant as well. So we had to have a termination, oh which just devastated her and devastated me. Yeah. And sadly, um, we gave her a priesthood blessing and the doctor, I almost punched him because he walked in and he said, I'm really sorry to be a bad news, but you'll be dead in two years and just walked out. Okay. And <laughs> so with that news, she was just a mess. Yeah. I was a mess. Anyone would be. Yep. And so with that news, we we went home and Jackie didn't live two years. Jackie lived six and a half years. Oh. Before she passed away in my arms. Wow. She wasn't supposed to have a kid, but she had my son, who now drives tanks for the U.S. military. Wow. When he was born, we were all arguing about what names to give the child. I wasn't supposed to choose Michael for the Michael Jackson thing. Right. <laughs> we I came out with John because our dad's name was John. We came out with all kinds of names. And every time the spirit said, that's not his name. Jackie's lying in bed. She's in pain. The nurse comes to change her dressings and stuff and says, hey, her two, my two um, adopted daughters, or they actually sealed to me now, they were standing next to, next to me on the, at the bed. And the nurse comes and says, you guys have to choose a name to put on the, on the documents. As soon as I'm done with Jackie, we need to put a name. I'm like, well, thanks for the timing. It's gonna, <laughs> we can't just rush a name. But she says, I want a name. And I'm like, okay. And so Jackie says, well, I'll try my best to do the same. And then she's behind this curtain. We're standing in a huddle, the three of us, and we're going through these names and going through these names. And then there's just a silence. And then the spirit says, his name's Michael after Adam, the archangel. Mm. And I'm like, his name is Michael. Rachel looks at Claire. His name is Michael. Claire looks at me. His name is Michael after Adam. Is this in England? This is in England. Okay. And we said, that's his name. And then we turn around and then we open the curtains and Jackie's crying. And I said, do I need to get the nurse again? She says, no, I'm crying because I know what you guys know. What's that? His name is Michael. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how he got his name. Wow. So after Jackie died, I was on my own for two years with Michael. And then I married a return missionary by looking at a photograph. The spirit said, this is your wife. So so you had Michael and then, so you were raising Michael and also her daughters that she already had? I was initially, but within two weeks of her death, her family came, wanted me to sell the house and give all the money to the girls and not worry about Michael. And again, it was just, and again, drugs and alcohol played a huge factor oh. in that. And... I mean, my daughters were my daughters. Yeah, yeah. When their mom died, I promised that I would look after them, and yeah. that was my intent. So I set up a trust for them. I sold the house. I put money in the bank for them for when they turned 18, they'll have their money to get them started in life. Took Michael, and we moved to a different town because I couldn't be around drugs and stuff for Michael. So was she that, were the, were, I'm sorry, were those two girls then raised by your by, wife's family? After that, yes. Yeah. They're happily married and have their own kids now and, and live in London and... You know, they're happy, and that's good. But um, after I lost my my first wife and I was with Michael, um, I was actually on a website, <coughs> excuse me, where I found um, a young lady that had reached out to me, and, and I had no intentions of going to Russia or anywhere in that nature. I was actually, as a child, was told I need to come to America, and that mm-hmm. was my intent. Right. And But marrying Jackie, we were already coming to America. In fact, we got a contract that, I was going to work on the five-star cruise ships. They even offered to take her and the kids with me on the five-star cruise ship. But then her cancer came back 
and without insurance in America, we had to go back to England because yeah. it was all socialized medicines and stuff. So that's how we ended up not living in the States at that time. Long story short, my my second wife was really a tough situation because she basically, long story short, she married me for a passport to get into the country. Oh. And she used two of our beautiful children to tie the the, the strength of the relationship to keep her long enough to be able to then move on with her, whatever intention she came. I was out teaching with the missionaries one day, and I don't know if you've ever seen the video Mountain of the Lord. It's a story about the Salt Lake Temple. Okay. And how the pioneers crossed from the east to the west, and how that was all, took them 40 years to build. Right. The very last president to actually dedicate that was Wilfred Woodruff. I'm in England, I'm in teach with the missionaries and we're teaching an Indian family and we show them this video and there's a scene in that video where President Woodruff is with his grandkids and they come and interrupt his interview with a newspaper reporter the night before the temple's about to be dedicated mm-hmm. and the kids interrupt the meeting to ask their grandpa if they can say goodnight prayers with him and sure, while that prayer is happening, the spirit tells me, you're going to marry one of his descendants. And my eyes are like, really? And it's like I'm having a conversation with you. It's as clear as the day. So I'm like... Is it... Do you like hear it? Do you hear it? Or is it just like a super clear thought in your head? It's a super clear whisper. And it's a thought, but it's as clear as a conversation I'm having with you. Sure. Okay. And so... I'm like, okay, whatever. And I put that in the back of my mind. I'm married to a second wife by this time, remember? And I'm thinking, well, for that to happen, she's going to have to be out of the way somehow. She's got to die or I'm going to be a widow again with three kids. Oh, my gosh. It's painful to think about, but when the Spirit's telling you something, it's something. And so I ignored it. And sure enough, nine months after I'm divorced, I write on the website and meet another young lady wrote to her and she writes back two weeks after the fact, which upset me because I wanted her to write back. And, <laughs> and uh, she eventually does. And she had a cap, a picture of herself. She'd gone fishing in Maui and she'd caught this ginormous, I kid you not, the floor to the ceiling fish. With it, and that was before the spike went out of the fish. Sure. And it's hanging from a crane and she's standing next to it like a midget. <laughs> and at the bottom, she's got a caption that says, dream on guys. So I was hooked. <laughs> I had, I had to write to this child. And so she finally writes back and I get home from work and I'm so excited. And sure enough, we get right into each other. And I, my thing was my third email. I said, Hey, by the way, are you by any chance related to, you know, who I didn't say the name. Mm-hmm. She writes back. She says, yeah, I'm his great, great granddaughter. I'm like, ding. I already know what that means. So I said, okay, I got to fly. Do you, you want to just get married right now then? Because <laughs> I flew her to London. She came and stayed for 10 days with my sister and myself. And we had got acquainted and we went into a grove of trees and I prayed. And I said, I would ask you to marry me right now because of the things that I've experienced. And I know, but I am old fashioned. I need to ask your dad and meet your dad for your hand in marriage and stuff. But we ended up figuring that out. So she flew back and then I... Came, so she's from... She's she from was Utah. From Utah, okay. Yeah, and so I came over in March to celebrate my, my birthday and met what her. What year is this by now? This was 2007. Okay. Yeah, and so I get to come and meet her family, her dad, and her dad said, you're never going to go to England and marry some guy that I don't know. Over my, my dead body, he said. Um, she said, well, dad, unfortunately, if I have to carry you dead or alive, you come in, so... 
But anyway, I had to come to to this day. Well, once he met me, he just absolutely fell in love with me. Her mom also was just incredible. And I say was because we just lost both of them recently. Mm. And we kind of looked after them for like 13 years. And it's just been an amazing family. And so when I came and and um, met her family, we actually had celebrated my birthday. And I, all the missionaries that had served in England were still in touch with me. So we had a surprise party, but planned surprise party <laughs> for me on my birthday. And, and they all showed up. And, and then I had planned to perform my a little bit of my Michael Jackson show for all the missionaries and because they all wanted to see me dance live and so I, I brought some costumes and everything in full makeup and did a little performance for them and her family and um, but then she blew me away because after I did that she had hired these um, veterans retired veterans to actually come fly, march into the wall playing while she sang the national anthem. Mm. And this was because I was immigrating here. Right, right. And they actually did the folding of the flag ceremony for me and presented it to me that day to say, this is for us welcoming you to our country. And I just, I was a mess. I fell on my knees right there. And then I said, this is the woman of my dreams. Would you marry me from the stage? Oh, my God. <laughs> And so you definitely have a flair for theatrics. Like I am, I'm picking this up. <laughs> Not intentionally. <laughs> so that's how Susan and I um, got engaged, and um, we were married in the Salt Lake Temple, and sealed. And we went on a 14-day five-star cruise for our honeymoon, and again, just miracles after miracles after miracles, and. At this conjecture, I, I, without wanting to not pay due respect to my mom, who was a huge hero in my life, I, I needed to also focus a little bit upon that side of my family. Because my mom, when I was young, um, told me that I was part of a royal family and I never believed her. And when you talk about blacks in the community where they live in villages and they don't have records and they don't keep records, how are you supposed to keep records of genealogy? Mm -hmm. And how do you, I find kings from that kind of um, situation. Well, about four, five, five years ago, I was um, at my in-laws' house, and some friends had actually asked to um, um, help me out because Dad had actually got a quote from a construction company to replace his roof for twelve thousand dollars. And I said, "Well, let me call a friend that can give you a bed and see what he comes out back." And he, he came back said, "I'll do it for two thousand, just mm. for the materials." And great. So dad said they got the job, of course. And so I, my wife's a nurse and she worked that night and uh, Saturday, it was a Saturday night and I picked up Sunday morning from a night shift from the airport, got her home. And as I pulled in, I noticed there was just the two of them and there were supposed to be four. And so I go in and I said to my mother-in-law, I said, you know what, I need to, um, I need to go and help these guys because they're doing us a favor for you guys. So I'm short some on hands. I'm going to go help. You shouldn't do that, Faisal. It's the Sabbath. I said, I understand, but I'm going to go help anyway. And it's always good to do good on the Sabbath day, though. That's my justification. <laughs> I go up the stairs, climb the roof, get to the other side of the roof. And I said to, to Afshan, I said, hey, dude, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm coming to help you guys because, you, you know, you've got two hands short. <laughs> he says, well, we're working with Tar, so to help, you need gloves. You need, the gloves are by the stairs. You just came up. I said, okay. I'm walking over the back west side of the the east side of the house over to the top and then coming down on the west side to where the ladder is. There's a concrete driveway. I'm about to touch the ladder and the spirit says, you're going to fall. And I'm like, okay. 
I still grab the ladder and I go put my foot on it. And sure enough, the ladder goes. And as it goes, it snags my foot, yanks me off balance, turns me upside down and sends me to the concrete head first. Oh my gosh. Knock myself completely out because remember the guys were there when I last saw them. When I woke up, they were right on top of me and checking me out and yeah. saying, are you okay? And yeah. uh, I was dazed. I, I don't know what had happened. Couldn't move and they less than two inches from my head. There was one of those tack nails with a three inch nail stripe on my head. Oh my gosh. So they removed that and then they kept, my wife's mad at them because they lifted me and moved me onto the grass so I'd be comfortable. And in that grass, there was lots of tacks and I'm getting pricked in my back. Oh. It's not nice. <laughs> And then I end up in an ambulance and I get, and then I was told by the doctor, you can't do nothing for six months and I'm sent home. So what was your injury? Did you have a I had spinal injury? I dislocated something in my, my neck. Okay. And so I was out of commission. I had a neck brace for a while and I had to stay home. And the next day of that incident, I'm at home and it was the fall and the leaves are all falling and... I thought, well, I at least got to go rake the leaves for dad because there's a mess in the yard and I get out there. I think I only raked five times. With the, with the rake, and then I just felt dizzy, and I thought, oh, i got to go put this down, and I'm going to go back to bed. So, to be clear, they had said, you can't do anything for six months, and the next day you tried to rake leaves. Yes. Okay. I then get to bed, but guess what? I didn't wake up for 48 hours. Okay. From that situation, that told me, Mr. Man, you need to listen to the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I decided I'm not going to work. I'm just going to chill. And then I went to a hotel at the airport and while I was in there the spirit says to me phone your aunt who's the only living relative on my mom's side of the family and I call my aunt and her daughter answers the phone her name's Pearly, my cousin and Pearly says hey face what's up I said hey I'm, I really need to talk to your mom is she there she says yeah yeah she hands the phone unbeknown to me Pearly's husband is a, a retired no, not a, he's a reporter but he used to work in my country okay and he apparently had and I, I didn't know this but he had an, uh, an interview that my grandfather had done to a reporter that wrote an article on him on his life so he hears me talking to my aunt and I'm asking all these genealogy questions because I want to know names dates places all this kind of stuff because once she's gone no one else is going to be there to tell me sure. anything and um and so while he hears this comment, he says, oh, if he's wanting information about his grandparents, he says, oh, I, I've got an article that his grandfather, I got an electronic copy, I can email it to him. So I said, oh, please do. Yeah. So that comes back to me and I open this document and I am just floored because my grandfather is talking about himself from when he was six years old. And he's explaining how his first job was to play with the white farmer's boy as his job and okay. entertain him. So okay. he got paid to do that. When he was 17, he was actually an accomplished musician. He could play nine instruments, set up a band and traveled to the south part of the country with his brother, set up their own band and they became famous overnight. So much so that they were so popular that they only performed for white audiences okay. at the biggest venues within that town. And that's where he met my grandmother. And they got married. My grandfather was very wealthy. He owned a fleet of buses, taxis, farm, hotel. They owned everything within a short space of time. While that, that had all happened, I get this name, because now I actually know my great-grandfather by name. And I, he then names his grandfather. So now I have my great-great-grandfather. Mm -hmm. That night in the hotel, my wife's at work. I'm, I was supposed to have gone to bed at like midnight. Then I was going to pick up in the morning. 
I'm all night, all night I'm researching, researching, and I find my great-grandfather. And I find out his name, I find out where he was actually based, and he was actually the king of the Manikalan province, which is um, north of Harare or Salisbury, and it's called, the town is called Rusape. And that town was actually, that entire county actually was belonged to my family. And they were kings. I was able to chase, trace my genealogy back to the 1600s. Oh Just by gosh. that one article. That's amazing. Yep. So the six months that I was out of work, I was going to the temple almost every day to do work for my family. Oh my gosh. I was actually part of the furniture because the patrons all used to say, oh, here comes the furniture again. <laughs> I was so, so popular in the temple. Because oh, I, I would do a session in the morning and I'd go out and come back into the next session and go out right. and come back in the next because I had a lot of names to do. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So after doing that whole process and stuff, I decided, you know what? I need to get back to work and I need to start, you know, working on my my career and stuff and so but um long story short especially at this time where you have floyd yeah george floyd george mm -hmm. floyd it's such an emotional thing because it makes me have to reflect on the prejudices i suffered in south africa and in my own country and around the world and the injustices that have been served, not just to me, but to family members. One particular incident that I can bring to mind when I was in Johannesburg in South Africa, I was on a day off from dancing and my sister and I, all colored, mm -hmm. wanted to go to a movie. And a white guy was dating a colored girl who was dancing for the same agent as me. He had, the, he had the day off and his girlfriend had to work. So she said, why don't you go with my boyfriend to the cinema and you guys have a fun, fun afternoon together. So we went, the three of us. He paid. No one said a word. Mm -hmm. We go inside. We're sitting there. The lights go on for intermission. And my sister nudges me and she says, you realize where we are? And I said, yeah, what's wrong? We're the only blacks in the cinema. Mm -hmm. And there's other white people and... Some people were staring at us funny, and I was just ignoring them. Watched the movie, had a great time, walked out, no one said a word. The next day, so my day off again, mm -hmm. my sister's working with me as a dancer. We decide we'd seen the trailer, we want to watch the next movie. So we go, I put my money on the counter, and the lady looks at me, she says, can't you read? I said, read what? And she said, look to your right, and I look up, and there's a big sign that says, no blacks allowed. And I said, but I'm not even from your country. She says, I don't give a crap. You leave right now, else I'm calling the police. She threw my money back and she wouldn't even touch it. I was like, are you serious? And I just had to walk away. This is the same theater that you had just watched a movie in. The, the day before. before. I said, I was in here just yesterday. She said, well, you, I didn't sell you the ticket. Yeah. That was her answer. So having seen Mr. Floyd killed and the way he was killed and the manner he was killed and with the, the systemic behavior that continues to happen in our world is sad absolutely and for me i i thank god for the spirit that he planted in me to be able to understand that regardless of the color of my skin 
as a child of God, I am not distinguished by the color of my skin. Fortunately, through the church, not only was I given such a great knowledge of not only who I am, but my, my actual existence and the purpose of my existence, getting my patriarchal blessing revealed to me that I actually have something sacred that I hardly share with anybody. Mm-hmm. And for me to learn that I actually have the blood of Abraham flowing in my veins, and it specifically says that, tells me it's not just about me, my father, my grandfather. I can trace myself back to Abraham, who in the Old Testament is a significant prophet. Sure, sure. And to know that I'm related to all those prophets tells me my lineage from a spiritual standpoint and from a physical standpoint. And as a child of God, I only have to look to my brother Jesus, who was persecuted, was whipped, was spat upon, was despised, was crucified, and even suffered death to be able to give life to us that we may return back to our Father in Heaven. Mm -hmm. And when I look at any individual, whether they're Chinese, Mexican, black, colored, white, it doesn't matter. If we cut ourselves, we all bleed red. Mm And if I had to ask you to describe what color is a spirit, what color would it be? It doesn't have a color. Yeah. What color is a light? Unless you put a gel in front of it, a light is white. Mm-hmm. So when you return to God and he doesn't distinguish you by color, but as a child, the easiest way I can explain it is that if you were a parent and you marry a man, but he dies and he leaves you with three white children, but then your second husband's a black man and gives you three colored kids, and then you marry an Indian who gives you three, are you gonna love all those nine children differently? No. As a parent? No. Why would you? Right. Right? So. I mean, I have a lot of feelings about this, and and I know that as a white person, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to spend a lot of time just listening right now. Like I'm trying to not just spout my own opinions, but my opinion about myself is trying to figure out, um, you know, like being able to recognize that I benefit from from systemic racism. You know, like I have never had to worry about anything because I am white. Like, you know, I mean. That doesn't say, that's not to say white people don't have problems, but white people don't have problems because of the color of their skin, you know? Absolutely. And so uh, I, I really want to try to, like, understand, I, I, as with everything that's happening right now, I think, you know, particularly with Black Lives Matter, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say right now I'm way on board with Black Lives Matter, so you can't really convince me otherwise of that. But um, you know, I think about the way native people are have been treated in this country too. You know, I understand that I am part my ancestors were part of people who, you know, like took over the land from native peoples and trying to figure out how to reconcile myself with that. I'm so grateful that you shared that because Melina and I actually had the conversation just yesterday on the phone and I said to her, the thing that really cuts to the bone for me is that it's not just about Black Lives Matter. 
Black Lives Matter because there's a movement. There is, when you actually go back in history and you see that blacks that were stolen from the continent, brought to the States into a system right. that still exists today. Yes. And I was watching the Ellen DeGeneres show yesterday and, and there was some cool things I need to share with you. I, I'm not sure if you watched it. I didn't. No. Okay, well, the right on that point that you made, there was Twitch who dances on Love his, Twitch. He was actually interviewed by Ellen with his wife and their one Allison child. Allison Hoker. I know them. It's great. It's fine. <laughs> they interviewed and they had a little experiment and they did this little podcast and they actually interviewed themselves and they, they actually had this incredible um, example. And they had a narrator ask 12 questions. And it was about white privilege. I've seen this bit. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and describe it. Twitch is asked 12 questions along with his wife. And out of all 12 questions, Twitch is taking his fingers away on every single question. Like, have you ever been, has, have you ever been, uh, someone left an elevator because you were on the elevator or has anyone crossed to the other side of the street to avoid walking with you and things like that? Has anybody, you know, um, uh, been upset at the fact that you were in the same uh, vicinity as you, or if you were, um, ha- have you been stopped and frisked, you know, those kind of things, or if you, um, there were just so many examples. By the time those 12 questions had finished, Twitch had ran out of fingers and could still say yes to the other two. Right, right. And yet his wife only dropped one finger. Mm-hmm. And Ellen finished that, rounding it up by saying that's what is called white privilege. Right. But then at the same token, I'm saying black lives matter because the way the system is, there's a movie and I, and I, if you haven't seen it, you have to watch it. It's called 13th. Mm-hmm. It it's actually, on Netflix. It's on Netflix and it's free on YouTube. So there's no excuse not to watch it. It actually talks about the systemic system that has actually been put in place by a, 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 an exclusive group of attorneys that have been hired to find laws that basically put blacks in a system that keeps them oppressed, keeps them from progressing, keeps them from sharing wealth, keeps them from being able to be successful. And it stems from the highest levels of government throughout this country for centuries. And that's what Black Lives Matter means to change the system but it's not just about black lives. What about the indigenous populace? Right. The Mexicans, the Indians that have occupied this land way before white people came along. Why aren't they being talked about in the same light? I, I, this is my own theory, and, and I'm perfectly willing to be corrected if this is incorrect. But um, just from what, you know, I, I know some you know, Native American people and have, I actually wrote a story recently that was about Native Americans. So I did some research and I, I think that, um, at this point, Native Americans voices have been so oppressed that they're having a difficult time even gathering a movement because they, I mean, you know, when, when they were protesting their water rights a couple years ago, they, they were treated horribly, and and also not only were they treated horribly, 
they were pretty shunted in the media. Like they didn't get much of a voice. Nope. And so um, I, I'm fully behind the Black Lives Matter movement right now because that's the one that we're talking about right now. So let's focus. Just like I, I heard somebody say, when, when we're talking about coronavirus and we're really worried about coronavirus, it doesn't mean we're not worried about cancer and ALS and HIV. Those, those diseases also matter. But right now, coronavirus is the, the one we need to really worry about. 100%. That's what Black Lives Matter. It does not mean that we're saying no one else's lives matter. Of course they do. That's silly. But right now, Black Lives are the ones that we're focusing on trying to to fix things for Absolutely. and it's going to be a long road we and we have to all be in it we have to all be in it for a long time it's, it's definitely an education and and suddenly it's about us willing to accept change yeah and willing to do our part to to be able to to mingle together and to treat each other with love and respect and with equality can i ask um sure uh what what your experience has been like in america Coming, in terms of race coming to america fortunately i've been shielded and protected by a higher source that has kept me from harm but it hasn't stopped me from witnessing things sure and i often used to come to the states on visits and stuff and when i in in different parts of the world blacks are, are in in this state in sorry in this country are seen to have a chip on their shoulder and and it's sad because it's not true. Mm-hmm. Playing the black card or the race card whenever there's an issue, they have a valid reason to. Because if you were to change the actual, reverse the roles and have a white society oppressed for centuries by black people, how would they feel? Right. It's mm-hmm. the same, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, the experiences that I've witnessed and I actually, as an entrepreneur, have come to a conclusion that I can't even go. If I have to be responsible as a parent and want to go work and provide for my family, I would get a job. But if you look at the acronym JOB, JOB stands for just over broke. (laughs) And you ain't going to get anywhere. You'll spend your whole life in a job Uh and not going. Why would I want to look at my boss on holiday and can take six holidays in the year and not affect his budget? And I'm the one doing the work for his company. So why can't I come up with creative ideas? Mm-hmm. But if I have a system that's in place that's going to stop me from doing that, this is a promised land. God gave everyone equality to this land. And every person should have the opportunity, if they get off their butt and work for it, the system will play against you. But there are ways to overcome the system too. Mm-hmm. My vision and my ability to do and never give up attitude is because I've lived a path that has brought me to this point and I won't work for anybody. I'll work with someone to better them and myself to help everybody else. But to say I would work for somebody else, never going to happen. But that's just me. Sure. We are, we, we, and I always say <laughs> we can't all be pilots. We can't all be doctors. We can't all be, you know, garbage men. We each have a pl- place in our lives too. But if we were able to give education to everybody, it gives everyone a fair platform. And then have... Equal education. Exactly. Yeah. And have everybody have the opportunity to be 
able to fulfill their dreams. Right. Okay. And so on a happier note, though, I mentioned the sadness about my daughter tragically being taken out of my life. And on a happier note, I three years ago, I reached out on Facebook and said, you know, this is crazy. With the amount of people that know me all over the world, someone needs to know where my daughter is. I need, I need to know if she's alive, if she's well, if she's married, if she's got kids. I need to find my child. And sure enough, three days later, I get a response from a lady out of uh, England who had been in school, high school with my sister, who was three years younger than me, and said, hey, I saw your post, you cried, I want to help, send me a birth certificate, a photo, something. I'm like, and I had lots of people say they want to help and never come up with anything. So I'm like, I opened this door, I need to at least give her something. So mm -hmm. I send the information. Three days later, I get a picture on my phone and I'm, I'm looking at this picture. I'm like, am I supposed to know this person? Now, if you go into your Facebook and look at your kindergarten friends and you try and recognize them now, they're not the same. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't recognize this woman. I'm like, so I text my son, am I supposed to know this person? Because she didn't even put a name or an explanation. Just, do you know this woman? And so I said, no. And so she sends a second photo, the same woman, but right next to her is my daughter. Wow. And I just started crying. I'm like, and I'm starting to tremble. I'm shaking. And I said, and I'm starting to say, well, how did you find her? And the next thing, she's just flooding me with information, her name, her address, her phone number, LinkedIn, Facebook. It's all coming. And about 50 photographs of my child. I ran out of that meeting and they were like, where you going? I said, oh, you have no idea. I just <laughs> told you guys I couldn't find my child. I found her. Oh, my Bye. Gosh. And I, I ran oh out the door. God. Driving down the freeway, I called my wife and said, honey, are you sitting down? And she's like, why am I, are you sitting down? Why am I, are you sitting down? Okay, I'm sitting down. Well, I said, I found And she's crying, I'm crying. And it took me two weeks to overcome the shock. Oh my gosh. So was she still in Africa? She's in South Africa, in Johannesburg. Wow. Yeah. And then I flew out about three months after that to go meet her face to face and Spent two weeks with her, and that was emotional because we. I had written the first letter I had written to my letter, my letter to my daughter, was filled with anger and a lot of hurt and expressing the experiences I'd had in that house with her grandparents, and I must have been into my eighteenth page, of writing my first letter to my daughter, and the spirit said, "You are wasting your time. You're causing more harm. Mm. Start again." So I didn't, for me, it was therapeutic because I needed to get it out. Yeah. And I just pushed it aside and I started again. If you go on Facebook, I'm sure you've seen this clip of two parents. One's black, one's white. They both have sons. These kids are like two years old. They start at one end of the pavement and are running towards each other. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they hug each other. Yeah. And it is the most incredible thing to see. And then they run down the same way, following each other and having a great time. Racism is not something you're born with right it's something you're taught you can unteach yourself mm -hmm. and you can make a change i saw a video of two little boys this was a few years ago where uh they were best friends a little black boy a little white boy and the little white boy said i want to get my hair cut and then no one will be able to tell us apart because the little black boy had like a bald head. And he's like, I'm going to get my hair cut. And then no one will be able to tell us apart. And no. I just thought it was the cutest thing. <laughs> <laughs> that is so sweet. Yeah. That's amazing. 
Oh, I'm I'm really so um, I'm really grateful. I, I mentioned in a previous episode that everyone I had interviewed up to this point was white, and not that I specifically am like I want to talk to someone just because they're black, but um, it's the environment that I'm in. But I want to be a good citizen of the world and make sure that I'm teaching my children correct principles and that um, you know any. Any part that I play in the systemic racism that's in our country, I can try to root out of myself. And I'm not, I'm not dumb enough to think that I don't have any internal bias, but I don't, I don't want to. So I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> so I'm, I mean, you are probably the most interesting person I've ever met in my whole life. So um, we have two hours now. So I'm going to, unless there's something really huge you've missed... Is there anything else that maybe you missed? I'll, I'll be honest with you. My life is filled with stories. It's filled with miracles. Many people that I have brought into the church through my life after, after having joined the church, many folks that I still look after back home and stuff. But if I can end by saying that I wasn't even supposed to... Um, be here today but I Melina had actually reached out to me weeks ago and said hey my aunt does this podcast I think you'd be really interesting to have in, interviewed and stuff and I don't ever like to say things or make promises to people that I don't keep and Melina will tell you I, if I say I'm going to do something I do it and so she didn't even expect it I called her last night and I said hey I know you asked me before I know it's important and I know that some of the things that I share can truly impact lives. Mm -hmm. and, and I hope that what I've shared can touch somebody to give them first and foremost hope that this world isn't all ugly. There are good people in this world. And it's the actions of a few that always mess it up for everybody else. Right. Not everybody's a racist. Not everybody, although they're white, is privileged. Because there are a lot of people that are white and they are not privileged. Sure, because, sure. you know, they're all in different you know, circumstances in their lives. But what you can unify us with is that we are all children of God. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether that's Buddha or it's a Muslim God or whoever you want to worship, just know that you are still a child of God. That's all that matters. That's all that you need to understand and love one another. And if your philosophy is that, you ain't going to fail. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm privileged to have come and been able to, to share with you and meet you personally. It's been an honor for me to come. And hopefully, like I said, I mean, I do have some powerful stories, really, yeah. really powerful. Yeah. I am just, I, I am beyond thrilled to have had this opportunity to meet you and hear your stories. It's opened my mind. Um, it's, it's enlightened me and enriched me in uh, ways that I'm still going to be processing for a little bit. But thank you so much for spending this time and coming to do this. I appreciate it so much. I can't, I can't say thank you enough to you for the privilege to have oh, been given this platform. So thank you. You're very sweet. We're going to sign off now. Say goodbye. Goodbye. Okay. <laughs> As this episode is already quite long, I'm just going to tell you my bright spot this week is you, the listener. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast, for listening to this full two hours, and uh, I really appreciate all the support that I've had, and for those of you who've reached out to me. Anyone who wants to reach out to me can do so on the Facebook page, 
through my personal email if you know it or at the say what is truth email which is say what is truth at gmail.com until the next episode be a light and say what is truth <laughs>